Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you all again. Uh, every time our family comes and visits, we are encouraged by our time with PBC, and especially this morning, just singing and praying with you about the day we will be with our Savior. That is a joy to think about that day. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. The following account describes the events of an African Christian's life not so long ago. One day, Joseph, who was walking along a hot, dirty African road, met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. Then and there, he accepted Jesus as his Lord and Savior. The power of the Spirit began transforming his life. He was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do was return to his own village and share the same good news with the members of his local tribe. Joseph began going from door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross of Jesus and the salvation it offered, expecting to see their faces light up the same way his had. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him and held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. They beat him so severely, he was dragged from the village and left to die alone in the bush. Miraculously, Joseph recovered from his wounds, and he returned to his home village to again share the gospel, and he faced the same opposition from these people he had grown up with and lived his life with. Eventually, he did see many people turn to Christ. He saw that God used his willingness to suffer to draw people to salvation. But there was one thing that Joseph learned through these events. If you are committed to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will face the opposition of the world. Have you experienced that? Have you seen in your own life the opposition of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? It probably won't come in the same form as this story. You're probably not going to feel the violent oppression of people physically beating you. But when you share the gospel with coworkers or neighbors, as a result, these people may try to avoid you. They may scorn your narrow-mindedness. Or maybe you have family members who you love dearly. And the desire of your heart is to see them know Christ and love Christ. But whenever you try and tell them about Jesus, they get angry at you. They say, why are you always turning the conversation to religious stuff? Your relationship is strained and maybe even broken. It's a strange paradox that as Christians, we have the message 
of salvation that brings hope to this lost world, and yet the world hates this message. They don't want to hear that they are sinners in need of grace and that Jesus Christ is the only way to receive that grace. They hate this message. And if you are committed to sharing this message, you will face opposition. So what do we do? When that happens, when we proclaim the gospel that Jesus has sent us to proclaim and we face opposition or persecution or scorn, how do we respond? Well, this morning, in our passage from Matthew chapter 10, we're going to look at where Jesus instructs us how to respond. He tells us how messengers of the king respond to their oppressors. And my prayer and my hope is that God will use this time in our lives this morning. This is not an easy message but we need this instruction because we are facing opposition for our faith and for the gospel in ways that in our country were not expected not too long ago. I think we all realize that as Christians, we are becoming more and more marginalized in our society and our culture and opposed and starting to face more harsh opposition. And so we need this instruction. We don't know all of what's going to happen in the days ahead, but praise God, He does know what is going to happen, and He has given us exactly what we need to walk obediently to Him, even when we are proclaiming the gospel in the valley of the shadow of death. So I want to just pray one more time as we prepare to look at Matthew 10. So I'd ask you to join me in prayer to ask God for his help as we look at this passage. Father, we need your help. I need your help to speak rightly. Everyone here needs your help to listen rightly. We need your spirit to illuminate your word and to press it into our hearts so we ask that you would do that for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So Matthew chapter 10, verses 16 through 25. You've already started this chapter as you've been walking through this book as a congregation. This chapter is a very important scene in Matthew's unfolding account of Jesus' life. It's in this chapter that Jesus is sending out his apostles on their first mission trip on their own. So up until this point, Jesus has been carrying out his ministry, and his disciples have been with him. They've been ministering alongside of him. They've been following him, and now he has chosen 12 men who he has commissioned with his authority to be apostles, to be his sent out ones, to go out and to do the same things he has been doing. So as he sends them out, this is a very exciting moment for these 12 
men. Everything seems so victorious up to this point in what Jesus has been telling them to do. He tells them, go and preach the gospel. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Cast out demons. Proclaim the message of the gospel. Extend the blessing of God's kingdom to those who believe and pronounce judgment on those who reject. All seems really victorious, really triumphant, really exciting for these 12 guys. As they listen, they're probably thinking, wow, Jesus is about to establish his kingdom on earth right now. And we get to be the top 12 guys. We're the ones who are proclaiming the arrival of this kingdom. Jesus is the Messiah. He's coming. And we have his authority. We can do the same things that he is doing. They probably thought that they were invincible. And then Jesus comes to verse 16, and the tone of his message changes drastically. It becomes much more foreboding. It's as if they were basking in the, the warmth of the sun, and all of a sudden this cold, piercing wind just strikes into them. Jesus has to adjust their expectations. He has to prepare them for what's coming. He knows that when these men go out and faithfully proclaim the gospel, they're going to face opposition. He wants them to know that. He wants them to be ready. And that's the first thing I want you to see as we walk through this passage. The first way that we as followers of Christ respond to opposition is to be ready. Let's read this passage again. We read it earlier in the service, but let's read it again together. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures till the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Followers of Christ are going to face opposition to their message, so they need to be ready. We like to know what's coming. We like to anticipate what's ahead of us. That's why when people are about to get married, they always ask people who have been married, what's it like to be married? 
What should I expect? Or people who are about to have a child, they, they go to others and they say, what's it like having a toddler or an infant? What do I need to know? What do I need to do? Or why some parents go to others, other parents who have teenagers and say, what should I expect when my kid hits the teenage years? We want to know what's ahead of us. We want to be prepared for what's coming. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's preparing his disciples and us for what we will experience as messengers of Jesus. He doesn't want us to be caught off guard. He wants us to have a proper perspective of what we will experience, and it's very sobering. He says we're going to face hostility, persecution, and opposition. There's going to be enemies. There's going to be suffering. Jesus wants his apostles to be ready for that. He begins this section saying, behold. That's an intention grabber. That's something that Jesus is saying because he wants his apostles to pay attention. It's as if he's saying, what I'm about to say is very important, so listen up. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, Jesus is being very intentional when he says that. He's using this imagery because he wants it to stand out in our minds in two ways. Sheep are targets. Sheep have no natural effective defenses against predators. They don't have teeth or claws that will help them defend themselves against wolves. And they can't hide in a shell. They're just this ball of wool wandering off in a pasture, exposed to predators. They're targets. It is very easy for a predator to kill a sheep. And wolves, Jesus uses this because he wants to remind us, wolves are vicious. Unlike sheep, wolves have claws and teeth. They have stealth and power, and they are very effective in killing. If they happen upon a stray sheep, they will make quick work of it. And they do not extend mercy. They don't give a second chance. They want to devour the sheep. So sheep are targets. Wolves are vicious. And that's what Jesus wants us to think when he says... I send you as sheep in the midst of wolves. You're the targets of very vicious, ferocious enemies. Understand what he's saying. I mean, feel the weight of what Jesus is communicating. This is sobering. And then throughout the rest of this passage, Jesus outlines what that's going to look like. They're going to be betrayed misunderstood, their motives will be questioned, they're going to be imprisoned, punished in a legal setting. Family relationships are not only going to be broken, but they're going to become enemies. Those who are supposed to be the closest relationships you have in this life will become your worst enemies, delivering you over to death. Jesus says you'll be hated by all. You'll be driven from your homes. 
You'll be maligned and mistreated and mocked. This is what the apostles have to look forward to when they're listening to Jesus say this. Now, it's important that we remember. So Jesus says this to these 12 guys. None of those things happened at this first trip. They didn't go out and face this kind of opposition for this mission trip that Jesus was sending them on. They weren't betrayed or imprisoned. They weren't scourged. They weren't killed. So why does Jesus say this to these guys before they go on this trip if it didn't happen? Jesus is speaking prophetically. He has more in mind than this one trip. Some of his instructions are specific to this one trip. You looked at some of those last week, but now he has transitioned and he is looking to the future. He's looking to the days after his resurrection when these 12 men minus Judas, will experience great opposition to the message that he is sending them to proclaim. So he's looking at what they're going to experience in the days ahead, but it's not just them that he's thinking about. Jesus is not just thinking about what Peter and John and James are going to suffer or what Andrew or Thomas are going to experience. He's thinking prophetically of us as well. He's prophesying of the opposition that his people throughout the age will suffer until he returns. And it may not be the exact same suffering. It may not be at the hands of every unbeliever. God's common grace restrains much of this, which is a good gift. But we will experience opposition just like these 12 men did, because we proclaim the same message. I think this is a hard reality sometimes for Christians in America. We often have wrong expectations about how the world should receive us and our message. For so long in our country, we have enjoyed relative acceptance of our message and in particular of our values in the culture at large. But we're living in a day when that's changing. When the wolves are gathering in greater numbers and fierceness. And if we're not careful, our response is surprise and a doubting of God. We can think things like, why isn't God maintaining the moral standard of America? Why are unbiblical principles taking priority over biblical ones? When will America get back to its Christian roots? Now understand, it's it's right to pray for and to advocate for and to, to work toward bringing about a, a more godly society. Trying to, to affect our culture in biblical ways. That's a good thing to do. But Jesus says we need to expect opposition. That is the norm for believers, not acceptance. 
we need to be ready, even in America, to face opposition and persecution. We shouldn't be surprised that we're beginning to face more hostility. So let me ask you, friends, are you ready? Are you ready or are you shocked by the wolves? Peter, one of the apostles who was here receiving these instructions, he wrote later in, this, in the Bible, in his epistle, he said, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that you're undergoing, as if something strange were happening to you. He listened well. Jesus wants us to be ready because if you are committed to the gospel, you will endure opposition. So be ready. Don't be caught off guard. Be ready. The next way that Jesus wants us to respond to this opposition that we face as his messengers is to testify boldly. Have you ever noticed how sensitive your skin is to heat? So if you go into a kitchen and there's a dish there on the counter that a minute ago was in the oven, but you don't know that. You don't know it was in the oven and you touch that dish, your immediate reaction is just to take your hand away. It burns, it's hot. You, you don't like that feeling. You remove your hand from the heat. In the same way, we can be tempted to try and remove ourselves from the opposition in wrong ways. So when we hear, like, if we testify about Jesus, we're going to face opposition. Well, maybe we should just not testify about Jesus. Maybe we should make sure that we don't feel that pain, that we avoid that burning. That's not an option for Christ's people. As people of the king who have been sent out by the king, we're called to proclaim his message. We're called to proclaim the gospel even when it costs. And that's what Jesus wants us to do. When we face the opposition, one of the ways we're supposed to respond is to testify boldly all the more to the gospel. Even though it's the same message that is bringing the opposition, we testify even more. And there's several reasons for this, why Jesus wants us to testify in the midst of opposition. And the first is because Jesus has sent us to do that. So look at verse 16 again. Behold, I am sending you. Yes, this is a message to those apostles, but it again prophetically is looking forward to us. He is sending his people to proclaim the gospel. If you think of the end of this book, the Great Commission... Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you to the end of the age. We have this commission, and it's not just for the apostles, it's not just for pastors, it's not just for missionaries, it's for moms to share with the other moms in their neighborhood playgroup. It's for teenagers to share 
with their teammates, their coaches. It's for employees to share with their coworkers and their supervisors. This is for us. It's for the church. We're sent to proclaim the message, and we're sent by Jesus himself. And remember, this I think is one of the, it would be a great help to us when we face opposition, when we face fear for the responses we have from people. The opposition we face is when we remember Jesus, when we remember who he is, when we remember what he's done for us, that although he existed in the form of God, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself took the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. You know, when I was in the army, I would always try and obey my sergeants, my supervisors out of duty, which you're supposed to do. You're, you're a soldier, you obey those who are over you. But there were certain men, certain sergeants, certain supervisors who I would have obeyed not out of duty but out of delight. I would have done anything for them because of the kind of leader they were, how they treated me as their soldier. What greater leader can we have than Christ? Can we not like good soldiers, look to our leader and say, I would do anything for him because he has sent me. So we testify boldly because Christ has sent us. We also testify boldly in the midst of opposition because opposition is an opportunity. I want you to look at verses 17 and 18 again. So Jesus says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. There's a piece of farming equipment that's known as a tree shaker. It's a machine that latches onto the trunk of a fruit tree and then it spreads out a net or a canopy all around under the branches and then the machine shakes the trunk of that tree violently. If you watch it, it almost makes you think it's going to snap the trunk. And as a result, all of the fruit falls off the tree into the net. Persecution and opposition is the same thing for Christians. We face opposition and it's like a tree shaker. It shakes us makes us feel like we're going to break. But it's because of that that the fruit of the gospel falls. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, for the apostles, they're going to be brought before kings, governors, Gentiles to testify. We're going to be brought before others to testify to the gospel. We're going to be opposed. We're going to suffer. But it's this suffering that is going to give us the opportunity to share with those who still need the gospel. Even our oppressors need the gospel. So this opposition is functioning like an opportunity for us 
to make much of Christ. If you read in the history of the church, the early church, what you will see is one of the things that spurred people on to actually investigate Christianity and to become Christians was because they saw Christians suffering for their faith. They saw Christians losing their homes. They saw Christians losing their jobs and losing their lives joyfully for Christ. And it made them think, I don't understand that. I have to know more about this. And because they pursued knowledge of Christ, because the people had suffered, the Christians had suffered, they also became Christians. That's why there was one man in the church, he served the church, his name was Tertullian. He said this, the blood of martyrs is like seed. The more you mow us down, the more we grow. The opposition we face, it's going to be different than what these Christians face. It's going to be different than what the apostles face. But we will still face opposition. And when we do, it is an opportunity to make known the gospel. So that when they see us suffering, it gives credit to our message. It gives weight to our message. People will turn their heads and say, I don't understand why they would do that. Why would they suffer? And it exalts Christ. So we testify boldly because Jesus has sent us. We testify boldly because opposition is an opportunity. We also testify boldly because the Spirit will empower us. I want you to look at verses 19 and 20. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you're to speak or what you're to say. For what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. The Spirit will empower you. I think one of the chief reasons that Christians are afraid to share the gospel with others is that we're afraid we don't know what to say. I'm nervous. What, what if they ask me something I don't know the answer to? How do I start the conversation? Have you ever felt that way? I mean, I've felt that way many times. But Jesus assures us here. He says that when we testify to the gospel, even in the midst of opposition, the Holy Spirit will empower us and will give us the message he wants us to say. Now understand what Jesus is not saying. He does not mean that we should never think about what to share. Sometimes people think that when they read that Jesus says, don't be anxious about how you're to speak or what you're to say. Jesus is not saying that we should not think about how to share the gospel or that we shouldn't grow in our ability of sharing the gospel. He's saying don't worry about those things. Don't be anxious about those things. He does want us to grow in our understanding of the Bible and the gospel so that we can share it more effectively. He wants us to do this consistently so that we can do so better. We can grow in this way. But he doesn't want us to worry about it. He wants us to trust him in these situations. Even as we're growing in our responsibility to share, it's similar to what Jesus preached earlier in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll wear. You don't need to run after all these things like the Gentiles do. Don't worry about these things. Jesus was not saying that, okay, you can quit your job. Don't worry about it. Don't worry. You're going to be fine. Don't work. Be lazy. It's not what Jesus is saying. 
You're saying, yes, you have responsibilities. Yes, you work. Yes, you try and provide for yourself. You don't worry about it. Because ultimately, God is the one who is going to take care of you. And the same is true when you share the gospel and you evangelize. Yes, you seek to know the gospel more. You seek to understand, how can I share this better? But ultimately, you're not anxious about it because you know the Holy Spirit will help you and guide you and grow you as you share the gospel. So even when we face opposition, we testify boldly because Jesus has sent us. Opposition is an opportunity and the Holy Spirit will empower us. The next thing that Jesus wants us to see, the way we need to respond to the opposition that we face as his messengers is avert wisely. Go back. We've already read it, but I want you to go back to verse 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents. So Jesus uses another image from the animal world. I think it's because he sees how helpful it is to have multiple angles to to see how we should respond. He wants us to expect persecution, to be ready for persecution, as if we were sheep in the midst of wolves. But he also wants us to be wise like serpents or like snakes. What does that mean? If you know anything about snakes, you'll know that they are wise animals. They know how to act calmly under pressure. And they are very skilled at preserving themselves from danger. And they know how to get away. And that's why Jesus is using this imagery of a snake. In essence, what he's saying is that Christians should use wisdom to appropriately avoid persecution in certain circumstances. When we face opposition as Christ's people and we begin to suffer persecution, there are appropriate ways to avoid that. Jesus gives one example in this passage. You should see it in verse 23. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Jesus is not saying, if you suffer opposition and persecution, you just got to bear it every single time. There's no escape. No, he says, if it's appropriate, wisely avoid the persecution that comes to you. If you think about last year, when the Taliban successfully took over the country of Afghanistan, There were Christians in that country that were seeking to get out because they knew that the persecution was about to get a lot more severe. And by God's grace, some of them did get out. And that's a totally legitimate thing to do, to seek to flee from one place to the next, to preserve yourself from danger. Scripture gives other examples of what this looks like, how to be wise as a serpent and to wisely avert, avoid persecution. Paul is an example. When he was about to be flogged unjustly, beaten, he appealed to his Roman citizenship so that he wouldn't be beaten. 
On another occasion, he's on trial before religious leaders, and he sees that there's division between them. They believe different things, and he highlights that division, trying to show, like, what I believe is in line with this. You don't have to oppose me because these guys believe the same thing. And it preserved him from being unjustly condemned at that time. He was preserved from suffering unjustly in that moment. Jesus is also a helpful example here of how to use wisdom when experiencing opposition. You remember in the last week of Jesus' life, as you read in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the days before his crucifixion, it's as if all of the religious leaders are just focusing on him, trying with all their might to trap him in his words, to capture him in some way, saying something wrong or something that will get him in trouble so that they can kill him. And they come up with all sorts of riddles and problems and questions, and they just bombard him with these things. And every single one, Jesus answers with such wisdom that not only does he not get trapped, but the ones who are seeking to oppose him, they get trapped. They can't answer his wisdom. So Jesus used wisdom, he discerned their trickery, saw through their deception, and preserved himself from being killed at a time that was not his hour. So Jesus wants us to look at our circumstances, look at our situations, and wisely evaluate, is there a way to appropriately avoid persecution in this situation? It's good for churches today to have governing documents that explicitly state their biblical convictions on gender and sexuality. It's one example of this. So that they avoid litigation against them. It's appropriate to leave one area to go to another area if that will help keep you safe. So we can wisely avoid persecution, but we must be wise because there are inappropriate ways to avoid persecution. And there are wrong times to avoid persecution. One example of this, of a wrong way to avoid opposition, and it's something I think we all struggle with in some sense, it's waiting for unbelievers to ask us about the gospel rather than us intentionally telling unbelievers about the gospel. Too often, we hope that we will live lives in such a way that unbelievers will ask us about Jesus. Now, that does happen. That's a good thing when we live our lives in such a way that people ask us about why we live that way. And that can lead to gospel conversations. It's a good thing. But too often, we act like this is the only way to share the gospel. We have to wait until someone asks us. And we avoid intentionally sharing the gospel where we are the ones who are pursuing not just waiting for people to come to us but friends jesus does not just want you to wait for people to notice your life and ask you why is your life different that happens that's wonderful and share the gospel jesus wants you to go and he wants you to plan and initiate gospel conversations Last year, there was a young woman who 
started coming to our church in Vermont. When she started coming, she was an unbeliever, but the Lord was working in her heart, and after a few months, he rescued her. And it's been a delight to just watch what the Lord has done in her heart, giving her affection for him, giving her new desires for Scripture and for Christ. And one of the things in her, her wonderful zeal for Jesus that she wanted to do is to call people from her past and to tell them of the Lord's work in her life because she wanted them to come to know Christ as well. So she called one of her friends who she knew, she knew known for many, many years. And she told this friend, I need to tell you something, I am now a Christian. And her friend responded, that's great. Welcome to the family, so am I. And our friend was a little surprised. I was like, wait, you are? She's like, yeah, I've been a Christian the whole time I've known you. And our friend was surprised because she's like, why didn't you say anything? You never shared the gospel. Don't let this story repeat itself in your relationships. Yes, use wisdom to avert unnecessary persecution, but not to the point that you hide your light under a basket. But if you have been hiding your light, which again, I think all of us at times in our lives are guilty of this, when we've not been intentional about sharing the gospel, we have a gracious king who stands ready to forgive and to equip us when we repent. So repent. Look to the king who died for your sins and share the gospel. The final way that Jesus wants us to respond to persecution that we face as messengers is to suffer innocently. Suffer innocently. I want you to look at verse 16 one more time. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So again, Jesus looks to the animal world to give us an example of how we are to respond. And he says to be innocent as doves. Doves in Jesus' day were sacrificial animals. They were considered pure and innocent. They could be sacrificed to God. Jesus wants us to be innocent like that, pure, holy. In other words, our lives need to be above reproach. The opposition that we face from the world should be for the sake of Christ and the gospel only. So again, Peter, again, we've already spoke of him, but he he listened well to this because when you read 1 Peter, so many of the same themes, re, same themes resurface. He said this in his letter, Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or as a troublesome meddler, but if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. If you get a speeding ticket, that's not suffering for the gospel. 
if you are not forthright on your taxes. And the IRS finds you for that. You're not being persecuted as a Christian. That's not commendable before God. Jesus calls you to be innocent with regard to sin. The suffering you experience from the world should be because of Christ and his message. That's what Jesus says. So look again at verse 18. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake. For Christ's sake, not for sin's sake, but for my sake. Verse 22. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. Again, that's why they hate us. It's because of Christ. Verses 24 and 25. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. They've called the master of the house Beelzebul. How much more will they malign those of his household? So it's because of your association with Christ, not because of sin. So is your life blameless? Are you living in such a way that like Daniel, the prophet Daniel, when people try to stick accusations against you, the only thing they can accuse you of is, well, he really loves Jesus, and he can't shut up about him. Don't give them any other reason to attack you. Be innocent as doves. I think there's another way, though, that we can be innocent like doves. Not just in the way we live our lives in a holy manner, but innocent in the way that we respond to our oppressors and to our persecutors. When we suffer opposition, we are not to retaliate. We're not to seek revenge. Our innocence compels us so much that we are harmless and suffer quietly. Think back to the imagery of a snake. If a snake is cornered and has no means of escape left to it, what will a snake do? It will lash out and it will bite. I guess why Jesus changed the imagery to a dove. Doves don't do that. When a priest took a dove to the altar and killed it, the dove did not seek revenge. It suffered quietly and was harmless. Jesus wants innocence to so characterize us that when we are wrongly persecuted for the message we proclaim, that we are harmless like doves and we don't lash out. We don't seek revenge. We don't retaliate. So when people malign you and gossip about you and make fun of your faith in Christ. Jesus wants you to bless those people and not curse them. When others try to get you in trouble at work because you're intolerant in your religion and you won't acknowledge the faiths, the faiths of other people, Jesus wants you to resist retaliation and to bear your suffering gently. And if someone filled in violent rage, approached you and sought to harm you or even kill you for your faith, 
and there was no way for you to appropriately avoid that, then Jesus wants you to offer your life as a sacrifice. He wants you to suffer innocently, quietly, and harmlessly. If you are committed to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus, you will face opposition from the world. How do we respond? We need to be ready. We need to testify boldly. We need to avert wisely, and we need to suffer innocently. If you wanted to sum all of that up in one sentence, it would be this. Followers of Jesus respond to opposition the way Jesus did. Jesus came to this world knowing that he would be opposed. He knew he would be killed. Though he made the world, the world did not receive him. And he was ready for that. It did not keep him from testifying to the gospel, though. Even though he knew he would face this opposition, he boldly proclaimed who he was, what he came to do, the message his father had given him. He used wisdom to avert and avoid persecution before his appointed time. He didn't compromise his message or his mission when he did that. But when his hour of death finally did come, he suffered innocently. All his opponents, all they could do was conjure up false accusations. And none of them stuck. The constant refrain of everyone watching these events from Pilate to Herod to the thief on the cross to the centurion who was overseeing his execution was, that man is innocent. He did no wrong. He suffered innocently, and even though he was suffering unjustly, he did not retaliate. He did not seek revenge. Again, Peter points us to this when he says in his letter, Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. While he suffered, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And Peter tells us Jesus did this for two reasons. One, the first was to save us, to bear our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we've been healed. Jesus bore up under this suffering so that he could redeem our souls, so that we could sing together today that one day we will be in heaven and we'll see the pierced hand. He did it to save us. And, Peter says, he did it to leave us an example so that we would follow in his steps and suffer the same way he suffered. A disciple is not above his teacher. A slave is not above his master. It's enough for the disciple to become like his teacher and the slave like his master. So when you experience opposition 
whether it's in great ways or in small ways, for the gospel, follow in the steps of Christ. Let's pray.